Aloha, and welcome to The Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel, Kaneohe. Today, Pastor Ralph brings a message entitled, Faith That Sets You Apart. And now, here's Pastor Ralph. I want to make a very long introduction today and a very short message. And what I'm trying to do is I want to take you through chapters 12, 13, and 14 of the book of Genesis, all in a hurry. And we're going to actually take time to look at 14 and read it. I just want to hurry you through the two chapters before. Because I want you to see a process of growth in the life of this man, Abram. The Bible says that he's the model for us in faith. He's the father of all who believe, is the way the scripture puts it. In other words, our faith ought to develop and progress like his developed and progressed. Now, as you, as you look at Abram, we talked about him last week having a relationship with God moving into a relationship with God. And it was largely driven by, by his own need. And I think it's our selfishness that brings us close to the Lord in the beginning. There's, there are things in my life that aren't the way that I want them to be. And so I, I come to God hoping that he can make a difference. And we talked last week about how there's, there's three ways that he wants to make a difference. He wants to, to first give you the thing you're asking for. Second, he wants to surprise you by supplying it in abundance. Are you looking for love? God has love for you. You need for your business to, to, to succeed and to be in the black? Well, God wants to do more than that. He wants to prosper you. Are you looking for wisdom to make your family operate well? Well, God wants that family to be so good that this brings us to the third thing, that you become a channel of his blessing, that God can pour his goodness into you and then it can fan out through you to people around in the community. God is willing to partner with us if we're willing to partner with him. And so Abram receives these wonderful promises from God and he trusts the Lord enough that he gets up and he moves to the place that God wants to take him. He's willing to forsake his past for the future that God has for him. And he moves from a place called Haran where he lives down into a place that the, the Bible calls Canaan, which is the modern day land of Israel. And he camps out there for a while and he worships God. That's where we left it last week. As you get into chapter, the rest of chapter 12, you see that there's a famine or something that develops in the land. And Abram, rather than to say, I'll just stay here and trust the Lord to take care of me, or perhaps at the Lord's leading, we don't know, it doesn't say that. One of the things about Genesis is that you, you have to understand there's not a lot of detail in Genesis. When you start to, to read the first three chapters of Genesis, the creation story, you need to keep in mind it's not written to be a science book. All God is saying is, here's what I did, and here's the order in which I did it, and uh, I'm here. So when you, we get caught up in some of these arguments, we're, we're trying to make an argument without a lot of evidence. And So as you get here, for some reason, Abram, he goes to Canaan where he's supposed to go, and then we don't know why, he just leaves Canaan, and he goes off into Egypt. Now he gets down to Egypt, and he's, he's confused, and he's frightened, because the Egyptian king has a harem. He has lots of wives. And Abram's wife is a looker, and Abram is afraid that the king is going to take his wife away from him. In fact, what he's really afraid of is that the guy will kill him in order to take his wife away and, and kind of put some sort of a, you know, it's easier to do murder than adultery. Uh, I'll kill you so your wife is free for me to marry her. That's the thinking that Abram has. Now, you know, as you read through Genesis, one of the things that always confuses me, and I, I never have found an answer to this, is the ages. If you read chapter 11 of Genesis, you see some people are like 200 years old. And, and I question sometimes, does that mean 
that maybe they marked the calendar with the, 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 the summer and the winter equinox or something. I don't know. All I know is the Bible says his wife is 65 years old and he's scared that some guy's going to bump him off to get his wife because she's so good looking. Anyway, you just figure that one out on your own. He gets down there and he tells her to lie. You lie and say you're my sister. So he won't know that we're married so that he won't want to take my life. And you can go join the harem, babe. You know, a lot of security in this marriage. Now, as you read the whole story, one of the things that you see uh, is that, is that in, in early civilization, in every culture, what we would call incest, they called normal. They hadn't yet understood what happens when you marry your cousin or you marry your sister. And, and Sarai was a, a half-sister to Abram. And so, in a sense, she's telling the truth. She is his sister, but she is his wife. And, and so, he, he, what he does is he kind of slip slides around and he takes things into his own hands, doesn't trust God, and he finds himself to be a person without much integrity. He's willing to, 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 to tell a lie or cover up a truth, however you look at it, to save his skin. Now, this is not a man who's showing a, a, a lot of the attributes of faith and faithfulness. Yet the Bible says, here's Abram, the father of the faithful. Now, what I think is that God took time to make sure that this all got written down. So we who start well and then fall in our nose would know that there's hope for us. That makes sense? Virtually everyone in this room that's had an experience with God has found that that experience with God begins to transform the inside of you but it's a process. It doesn't just happen like that. And some of us are, are, are laying there rolling around in the mud right now and feeling really sorry about the way that we are and feeling miserable like we've let God down somehow and that he must just about want to be done with us. And what you see in the life of Abraham is a story of hope that God works you through the process and he strengthens you and he betters you. And what's important to you and I is not that we get it all right. It's that we stay in the process and we stay teamed up with God and we allow His grace to continue to work in our life. And so you see Abraham and he gets kicked out of Egypt. The king figures out, and the Bible doesn't say how, he figures out, you lied to me, and he kicks him out of the country under the escort of armed guards. And so Abraham is coming back to the land of Canaan and he's, he's slithering back. You know, he's like a snake on its belly. Uh, things didn't go really well for him. And then the Bible doesn't say what happens next. It just tells another event in Abram's life. It's probably several years until he and his nephew Lot are, are prospering so much. God is blessing them so much that their herds of sheep and goats are getting too large to live near each other. And the shepherds that work for them are fighting with each other over the grassland and the water. And so uh, these two guys decide to part company. We'll split up. And God can bless us apart from each other more than he can together. And so Abram tells Lot, you look around you at all the land that's here and you pick whatever suits you best. And, and, and he's doing the thing that the New Testament really says that we ought to do. That's we ought to honor one another as more important than ourselves. Philippians chapter 2 says that. And so he's taking his nephew Lot, who he's been the caretaker of, and he's saying, you pick what you think is best for you and then I'll take whatever is left over. And, and then the Bible tells us that Lot picks the fertile Jordan River Valley. I mean, this is a desert land, so it's pretty scrub-looking prairie out there. And uh, you take the part, and Lot says, I want that part. 
And it's the lush, green, well-watered part, and he leaves Abram the rest of it. And, you know, if you, if you looked at a map of Israel, you would see that, that it, it's like stripes. Here's a stripe of desert. Here's a stripe of desert. And running vertically north to south, right down the middle of it is the Jordan River. So there's a big stripe of green. And Abram's probably thinking when he says, hey, Lot, you choose first, that Lot will choose kind of horizontally. I'll take some desert land and some good land, not vertically. I'll just take all the good land and leave you the rest, uncle. And what you see at the end of that chapter, chapter 13, is God comes to Abram and, and basically says, you've done a good thing. Don't worry, Abram. I'm with you. And eventually, all this becomes yours. It'll belong to your descendants. Don't you sweat it. You and I are going to be together, and I'm going to prosper you. You know, when you read that, you go, why did God appear at this time? It's got to be that Abram did a noble thing and then was beginning to have second thoughts. He did something that's really good. He put his nephew first, and then he starts to think, oh my gosh, I, I shouldn't have done that. And I think that happens to us in our growth in faith. We, we, we know the thing the Lord wants to, us to do. Uh, he begins to change us. He, he puts different values in our heart. And, and so we start to operate according to those values. And then sometimes we go, oops, maybe I, I, maybe I, I'm, I jeopardize myself here. I'm, I'm going to be in trouble because I try to do something that's really good. Does this make sense? You know, I, I had, we had a little thing happen. We had some business dealings with some people and it, it kind of blew up early in the week. And here's this company and you know how those kind of things go. Two people call up. One called and I talked to him on the phone. Another called and then came and talked to me. We messed up. It's our fault. We're sorry. You know, people who are willing to just put it right out there and say this is the way it is. Those are the people God always blesses. Those are the people God always blesses. The people who, who do the right thing are the people who in the long run win out. We live in a world that teaches us to do just exactly the opposite of that. And so here's Abraham. He's beginning to venture into the place where faith intersects with ethics. And he makes a, a right decision. It's a costly decision, but his faith hasn't grown so much that he feels real strong in that. He's at a place where he's, he's feeling very vulnerable. And the Lord says, no, no, hang in there, buddy. I'm on your side. We're going to go through this thing together. Am I making sense with this? Well, let's go ahead and, 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 and look at the next event in his life, which is a war. Uh, oh, let me tell you something. I forgot to, to put this in there. The, the, the Jordan River Valley and the place in it where Lot decides to settle is called Sodom. And you've heard about Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible actually says in chapter 13 that the people there are more wicked than the people anywhere on the earth. We get our word sodomy from the place called Sodom. And so you start to get some ideas what was going on. This is a very, very ugly culture. And suddenly the people in Sodom come under attack. There's a war. A king attacks them. And he kidnaps all the people who live in Sodom, including Lot. He takes all their personal possessions away, all the wealth of the place. It has nothing to do with Abraham, but it touches Abraham because it now has touched his relatives. And he finds himself enmeshed in somebody else's conflict. And, and he comes under Attack, And so I want you to read chapter 14. We're going to look at verse 1 and then we'll slip over to verse 11 real quick. And now we're going to get into the actual sermon. You heard the, the introduction. Now let's get into the teaching. Chapter 14 verse 1 says, About this time war broke out in the region. King Amraphel of Babylonia, King Arioch of Elasar, 
King Kedar Laomer, the hardest name in the world to pronounce, and he's the main mover here, of Elam, and King Tidal of Goim fought against King Bera of Sodom, King Birsha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, King Shebamer of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, now called Zoar. Now, what apparently was happening, you could read it in the next few verses, we're going to skip them, is that Kedolaramar was the boss. He ran all of these nine kingdoms to the extent that he extracted taxes from the other eight of them. Now, when you read about a kingdom here, don't think of the kingdom of, you know, like the king of England. Think the king of Kaniohe or the king of Kahalu. Uh, these weren't large kingdoms, but they all had their little armies. And uh, this one guy has been basically uh, extracting income from the rest of them. And, and, and four of, or five of these kings had decided we're not paying you anymore. And so Ketolaomar and his buddies come up and wage war against these guys and they haul off everybody as captive as a result. Verse 11, it says, The victorious invaders then plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and they began their long journey home taking all the wealth and the food with them. And when it says wealth, you might draw a little line down to the bottom of, of verse 16 because it mentions all the women and the other captives. It just says wealth and food. In those times, people were considered wealth because they were going to be hauled off as slaves. Families would be separated, never to see each other again in their lives. Uh, women would be raped and plundered. This is a very, very ugly scenario. And so it says, they plundered Sodom and Gomorrah, began their long journey home, taking all the wealth, all the food with them. They also captured Lot, Abram's nephew, who lived in Sodom, and they took everything he owned. One of the men who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was camped at the oak grove belonging to Mamre, the Amorite. Mamre and his relatives, Eshcol and Anar, were Abram's allies. Now, it's the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and all of that, but when the messenger comes to Abram, it becomes the story of Abram as well because he feels responsibility toward his nephew Lot. And so, as much as Lot is under attack physically, Abram now is under attack, can I say it, spiritually? He has a conflict within him. What do I do? Do I go out and trust the Lord to, to, re, you know, to knock these guys off and release Lot? Uh, do I just let it happen? Where am I in the midst of this conflict? And I think uh, you and I face those kind of deals a lot of the time. There's something that happens. We didn't do it. We didn't start it. We're not responsible for it. But it vastly affects our lives and it hurts us. You know, the New Testament says when things like that happen, don't start to get mad at other people. Begin to look into the spirit realm. And it says you're not really wrestling against flesh and blood. In other words, humanity. But you're wrestling against people that are driven by what it calls principalities and powers and rulers of spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. In other words, demonic forces cause a lot of the conflict that we find ourselves in that we didn't want to be in in the first place. And so Abram comes under attack. Now you're seeing progress in Abram's life. He started out from this man who God has said good things to, and he's begun to obey, to the weasel that did the thing that he did in Egypt, to the, to the sort of shaky person who's trying to make right decisions as he divvies up land with Lot, and now he stands up strong and true and says, I'm going to trust the Lord, and he goes out to war against these all of these kings. Now think about it. There's, there's four kings who've conquered five, so they're pretty tough guys. But they have the ability now to take all the slaves and all the people that they 
have control over and put a weapon in their hand and force them to fight against Abram. And Abram and his 318 men go up against these guys and they win. They surprise them in the middle of the night and they win. Uh, you get the feeling God's on their side. Look at verse 14. It talks about winning a victory. When Abram learned that Lot had been captured, he called together the men born into his household, 318 of them in all. These were the servant families. Now, this is a pretty big household. Abram is a pretty successful small businessman. He's got 318 men, plus all the other women and children. Plus, there's got to be other men because who took care of the flock while he went off to war with the 318? This is a fairly large operation here. And he chased after Kedor Laomer's army until he caught up with them in Dan. And then he divided his men and he attacked during the night, while the other guys are probably all laying around drunk, from several different directions. Kedor Laomer's army fled, so there wasn't a lot of fighting. They ran away. But Abram chased them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Abram and his allies recovered everything, the goods that had been taken, Abram's nephew Lot with his possession, and all the women and all the other captives. And so now Abram's the victor. He's in control, and he's a hero. He wins a victory in God's name. Again, here's a man growing in his faith. The process is working out. God's victory is, is happening in his life, like it'll happen in your life. You know, we, we always will have some kind of struggle going on, but we can expect the Lord to give us victory in those struggles. But now he's faced with what I would say is a, is a time of temptation. Look at the next few verses. Verse 17 says, As Abram returned from his victory over Kedor Laomer and his allies, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. Now, here's the king over the, the place that the Bible says is the most wicked place in all of the earth. So that's who he's doing business with. At the same time, verse 18 says, Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the priest of God Most High, brought him bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. And it says the things that he said to Abram. And uh, blessed be Abram by God Most High, uh, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who's helped you conquer your enemies. God's blessing is on your life. And bless God, because he's helped you with your life. And it says, then Abram gave... Melchizedek, a tenth of all of the goods that he had recovered. Abram tithed to Melchizedek like we would tithe through our church. It's a way of saying thank you to God for what he's done, but a way of also investing in the ministry that goes on. But I want you to take a look at Melchizedek. There's a couple things that you need to see about him. And this is a little sideline to where we're going with the message, but I think it's important. Melchizedek, the, the name means king of righteousness. So he is called the king of righteousness. Very stark contrast against the king of Sodom, who's kind of the king of wickedness. Here's a guy that's the king of righteousness. But that's the meaning of his name. He is, he's literally the king of a place called Salem. Now, this hadn't, Salem hadn't been involved in this war at all. And, and the location of Salem is the modern location of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is, is, is Salem nestled amongst the hills. That's what the word means. The word Salem means peace. So Melchizedek is called the king of peace as well as the king of righteousness. Now, the New Testament and the Old Testament say some very interesting and unusual things about Melchizedek. I'm going to give you three references you can write down. The first is Psalm 110 verse 4, which says that when the Messiah comes, he will come in the spirit of Melchizedek. The second is in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 20, and it's talking about Jesus, and it says, Jesus came 
in the spirit of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110 verse 4 and Hebrews 6.20 are like bookends. They're both saying the same thing from different periods in time. But then Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 to 27, long passage, goes on and on and on, makes this big almost legal argument that Melchizedek was Jesus. In other words, that supernaturally the Lord showed up. The, the theologians call it a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And that as, as Melchizedek comes to offer this blessing to Abraham and all who would follow Abraham, it's really the Lord coming to offer this blessing in his life. And when you couple that with the gifts that he brought to Abraham, it becomes doubly interesting. Verse 18, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God Most High, brought him bread and wine. It's like he's coming to serve him communion. And, you know, Jesus tells us that in the Passover feast that the bread represented his body that would be broken for us. The, the wine was a symbol representing to us the, the blood that would be shed for us. And, it, you know, it's just an interesting thing to read. Uh, you, you can make two different arguments out of it if, you, you know, if you're into that. Uh, you can argue that something really supernatural and miraculous took place. Or you can just argue that Melchizedek is a person who, as he lived his life, would kind of foreshadow the coming of the Lord. I, I, I kind of lean toward the miraculous. I think that uh, there's something that's uh, odd, unusual, and wonderfully supernatural going on here with Melchizedek. But let's move on beyond Melchizedek um, to verse 21. And I call this section, Living a Lesson. Abram is growing in faith, and he's beginning to live his faith. And it says that the king of Sodom told Abram, Give back my people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods that you have recovered. And when you just read it, it's like, yada, yada. But when you stop and think, if I'm one of those people who've been captured, uh, here's everything I've worked for in my whole life, and, and somebody just gave it away to somebody else. I mean, these people are living their life, whether they're good people or, or wicked people, they're just living their life, and suddenly come, somebody comes and makes war against them, captures all of their possessions, all of their material wealth, everything they own on earth, and captures them to haul them off into slavery. Now the cavalry comes in over the hill and rescues them. And suddenly the king of Sodom says, you know what, just let the people go. They can afford to live in poverty and you can have all the stuff that they ever owned in their life. Well, this would make Abram a vastly rich person. Could you imagine? I mean, the numbers are something like this. Suppose the, the king of Honolulu came to attack the kings of Windward Oahu. And everything from Kahalu to Waimanalo was, was conquered. And all of us were taken captive. And we were hauled over the mountain. And then somebody came to our rescue. And we were allowed to go free. But the person who rescued us was given everything we ever owned in our lives. He would become immensely wealthy. And we would be poor as dirt. Probably for the rest of our lives because you're starting over. It's not really a very pretty picture. You know, sometimes you, you read through the Bible and you don't stop to really think about it. When, when, you, when you think about it, you want to scream, Abraham, don't take that stuff. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. You did a noble thing here rescuing these people. Don't ruin it by stealing everything that ever belonged to these people because that's really what would go on. And so here is the king of wickedness, the king of Sodom, Telling Abram, you can have all the stuff, just give me back the people. Now, now again, think it through. The, the, the king of Sodom is 
really going to really be the master of these people at this point because they come back impoverished and he's in control. He's in total control. And, and this is like temptation coming right out of the pit of hell. And here's Abram. He replied, I have solemnly promised the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or a sandal thong, a shoelace, from you. Otherwise you might say, I'm the one who made Abram rich. All I will accept is what these young men of mine have already eaten, but give a share of the goods to my allies, and he goes on and names them. These guys don't get it with God, so you can give them something. But I'm not taking anything from you, and I'm not taking anything that doesn't belong to me. And I don't want anybody to be able to say that they made me a rich person. I want it to be said that God made me a rich person. You've been listening to The Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel, Kaneohe. 